Good everything, Nubians and others. <laughs> <laughs> Good everything, everybody. Thank you. So, yes. Uh, again, do not adjust your screen. Yes, Dr. Carr is not. Uh, oh, yeah, no. Yeah. This um, is the, we're just previewing uh, the, the all new 2023. We're going to be on the road a lot, huh, Professor? Yeah. Huh? Claiming that. You are. Uh, I don't even know how you be in them streets like that, but um, I wasn't. I mean, I'm locked down. It's grading time now. I got to turn all final grades that hour had to be in by Monday morning, but I've been nonstop grading, which is no problem. But I figure I can grade from anywhere. And now I got my tech kind of upgraded and everything in place. And I said, you know, I should come down here and bear witness to the spectacle that is Deion Sanders' last day walking on an HBCU hat. So I am coming. And, and what did Brent Musburger you say? You are doing live. <laughs> yeah, in about, about an hour, I'm going over to the 71,000-seat Mercedes-Benz Dome, sit in the end zone, and see what the hell is going to happen. Because I promise you, the circus is in town down here in Atlanta, Professor Hunter. <laughs> So is this bittersweet? Is this, uh, you know, because we've we've talked about it uh, too much. Not too much. We haven't talked about it too much because our discussion is not really even about Deion Sanders. Not yeah. about him at all. Not Thank him for his service. No right. question. Yes. Yes. So what do you what are you bearing witness to? And we should bear witness to things, I think. Right. So what, what for you? What is the uh, impetus for being the celebration? Well, let, let me ask you. Let me let me let me uh, uh, answer by way of asking your question. Are you? When's the last time that you're aware of a single event make, uh, gathering as much focus from people in the, not only the black communities in the United States, but people outside the black communities in the United States and black people having internal debate and discussion at the same time that they tell everybody else, yeah, back up, not your business. I can't remember a moment like just a single moment, you know? Million Man March. Good example. But you know what's interesting? The Million Man March, of course, and we both remember that very well. People chose up sides. I mean, you know, had John Clark and Angela Davis on the same side against it in some ways. And then you had other people. Rosa Parks was there. I remember that morning. Queen Mother Moore, Rosa Parks. So many others were there. Over to Shaka. I'm just thinking about it. Dorothy Height there. I mean... That's true. So what was that? That was and I remember it because I covered it for the social structure white facing media. Mm -hmm. I was sent out, you know, go to Harlem to see what people, you know, you know how they do that. So all of the white media was out there, you know, all of the white media trying to figure out what, what this was. Wow. And of course they can't any more than they have any business commenting on Deion Sanders. But just so I remember, you know, it's so funny that, you know, they had all these events leading up to it. And that in 95, we came down from Philly. But then when they did the 20th anniversary, was it? And was it 05? Anyway, you know, it's so funny. We all know the nation. And we all know that we can't have a governance conversation about the nation of Islam. Because the social structure not only doesn't want to hear it, they act like they have an opinion that we value. And of course we don't. Even if we are completely against, and by we, I mean that broad we. But I remember at key moments, we're in conversations, and then I remember saying, you don't know a GD thing about the Nation of Islam. And everybody was like, yeah, that don't mean I agree with the Nation of Islam, but what I know is you don't have an opinion that's worth valuing, because we out here in these streets dying. Uh, you remember, that was that was shortly after. You remember Dope Busters? Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> 
some some people may not know what we talking about. Tell them I don't, but tell them, you tell them. No, 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 because you you no. that was up there in your neck of the woods. I mean, no, there there was so much going on, and you think about the '90s, you know, on the heels of uh, Yusef Hawkins and and Michael Stewart, and you know, all over the country though, and there was um, just you know, the rise of hip hop, you know, which was actually just kind of chronicling what was going on in the streets. Please, please refresh us on dope. No, no, no. I mean, and we've talked about this again before. If y'all know that narrative, we had these conversations. We talked a lot about that. Um, of course, our sister Lisa Williamson, that is known as Sister Soldier, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton trying to build a whole political reputation off of her. And we wasn't trying to have that. And uh, but he did though. I mean, oh, he, she, of course he did. Yeah. Willie Horton. She was his Willie Horton, his welfare queen. That's you exactly know. right. That's exactly right. I mean, but our people, you know, and we saw the news what, yesterday or the day before, maybe yesterday. Mary Garland is advising, is telling his prosecutors in the Department of Justice, you're not going to prosecute crack cocaine at a different sentencing uh, level than you are powder cocaine. But you know, we were in the throes. I mean, this is the period where late 80s, early 90s, crack was ravaging our communities. And then, you know, the social structure in an uproar because uh, contract was let from to Nation of Islam to patrol the hood, to, to, to the dope busters and stuff. They were, well, you're not doing it. And we damn sure, in fact, in fact, there was an article in the Atlanta General Constitution a couple of days ago, and I just came down here and, and kind of getting up with some of the people involved. They building what is billed to be the largest police training facility in the country. They want to in the woods here in College Park and uh, near down the street College Park. And they are uh, calling it Cop City. And the people are out there. They, In fact, they just arrested some people who protested. They said, we don't want this here. But then it's because you're not going to protect us. And in the 90s, you know, we faced a crisis. And out of our governance formations, organizations like the Nation of Islam have been around since the 1930s. And of course, we know, of course, when you say hip hop, you remember, uh, of course, uh, Night of the Living Bassheads. And, and that, that video opens with them marching in front of the then kind of rundown Audubon Ballroom, the S1Ws, the Soldiers of the First World. And you see Chuck D jump in the, in the frame. Here it is. Bam. And he says, bam, Africa Bombada comes in for a split second. He goes back. This is the dope jam. But let's define the term called dope. And then he starts getting you know, and he's talking about the crack epidemic. The whole video is about the crack epidemic. That's when BET was black on. <laughs> and they had the little vignettes in and out. And of course, those days are long gone. Yeah. More black people on you. So yeah, that was uh, the Million Man March. I think you're right. This one may be a lot less overtly political. Yes. Yeah, I don't think people even understand. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't political at all. Maybe it's just a football game. Oh, no, it's absolutely political. It's absolutely. I want to listen. I want to thank Deion Sanders for his service. Well, I'll we'll get there in a minute. I do want to mention just a couple of things just because, you know, in, in a kind of gesture toward the new year in 23 as we go in, uh, the way the way I'm thinking about it, you know, we'll spend maybe next week with a recap of the year. Just very quick. Here's some of the major things that we think about, you know, major things that we've either talked about or haven't had a chance to talk about. And then we'll spend the following week, the 31st. I think that's Nita. That's the that's the second last day of Kwanzaa. And we can talk about, you know, the, the coming up year. What is our purpose? What are we thinking about in a kind of tighter format than we're used to? And then we can bust up in the new year. I think that's the, the sixth or the seventh um, with a kind of tight, you know, tight kind of process 
shorter time period spent in conversation here because we've done we're building so much on the Nubia side and narrative side and you know just the conversation we're having in office hours and with the class adding to that suite of classes that continues to grow we can work a lot of that stuff out over there and so but today i thought that you know kind of a gesture toward coming up there are a couple of things that came to mind first of all i don't want to say anything else until i gotta say uh happy 89th birthday yesterday my man uh one of the great in fact i would say the great the, the the great book collector, in fact, the greatest living book collector, the great Charles Leroy Bloxon out of Norristown, Pennsylvania. Mr. Bloxon turned 89. That's my my, my, my former boss at Temple. He, he, uh, he, his, his collection now is the corpus of the Bloxon collection at Temple. He uh, took the baton from people like Dorothy Porter Wesley. In fact, that's when I met Miss Porter was through Mr. Bloxon. And of course, that stretches back to uh, everybody from Gene Blackwell Hitson and and you name the great librarians, Jesse Carney Smith, who's still around, but that takes you back before that that generation. That's Arturo Schomburg. Yeah, and, the, and and they can all go. Those of you in Nubia to the you should know section because the masterful, uh, colorful uh, introduction to Dorothy Dorothy Porter Wesley is in there. Yes, yeah, thank yes, you. Yes, no, brings in Schomburg and everything. Absolutely, and I just wanted to mention that because Mr. Bloxon many many an hour i spent with him hunting books that man is the master so you know happy 89th baba that's uh and matulu shakur is home so it's good to see that he's out and he's home with his family got to release the rest of these political prisoners um but i thought it would come down today to the celebration bowl in part because as we're saying the last couple of weeks we spent three weeks here near the end of the year and again i want to thank the i sanders for his service I mean, he sure didn't know this is what he would be doing, but, uh, and I don't have a critique of Deion Sanders. As close as I would come would be last week, and I'm glad that all the, the comments and the conversation that this has engendered. Um, but, you know, that first week leading up right before the announcement, we were talking about, you know, the, the energy. I mean, the disruptive energy in many ways, and, and not disruption in a negative sense, um, what kind of shining a light on this might mean if Sanders was to leave? And of course, and then last week uh, when I was in Baltimore, and um, by the way, so funny, uh, Dr. H uh, Humes, Linda Humes has a couple of uh, new children's books. I got I picked these up at the Black Family Summit. Uh, uh, this is uh, Yaba, Inspirational Education, Arts, and for Life. But here's the one that coming up for the season. The night Anansi stole Kwanzaa. I'm like, Dr. Holmes, uh, she's a professor, actually, I've kind of stayed with John Jay. Uh, they're making a documentary on the um, on the Black Family Summit. So we were talking, and she's a regular, so she's by in here this morning. Uh, Can you hold that up please? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. The night Anansi stole Kwanzaa, Dr. Linda Holmes. I mean, I love it because the illustration's all black. That's beautiful. You know, Anansi the spider. I mean, and we have so many children's books. I'm bringing, I'm bringing her up in this moment because here at the onset, because she, um, like I said, they're making a documentary on the Black Family Summit, Bob Lynn Dunstan and them, and, and they were there all weekend in Baltimore over there last weekend. And she just couldn't wait to sing not only your praises, but to talk about how this platform and this work that we're all doing is just invigorating and inspirational and sparking all kind of connections. And so, again, it's just another reinforcement. And she said, I want you 
to have this book. And I said, yeah, of course. And I'm reading, I'm like, this is beautiful. And she said, walk me through how they put it together. And I'm like, okay. I mean, it just goes to show you that we have that groundswell. Um, but yeah, I thought I would come today because like I said, I slipped out of town and can work from anywhere. I was in National Airport uh, yesterday and sitting there watching all these students leaving D.C. from, I suppose, George Washington, Howard, you know, Maryland, all these schools. And you realize that the world for them has changed. The world for us has changed. And I said, let me come down here to watch this. And then next week, you know, we can talk about what may or may not have happened here. Um, but there's so much converging at one time that I just wanted to bear witness. Um, <laughs> watching uh, watching Deion Sanders' press conference, uh, you know, they, they're all in town. And, and listening to him, I, I felt kind of sorry for the brother, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> I said, bro, y'all right? But, but I mean, I'll, I'll come down in a minute. I, w- I want to talk about a couple other things, though, before. Um, I didn't want to come down here and just kind of rush. So, you know, I got up, uh, graded some papers Thursday and you know, worked, and then... Um, about Thursday afternoon, I stopped and walked over to get a haircut. And I go different places, but one of the places I kind of go fairly regularly is a place uh, on George on George Avenue. A lot of Continental Africans go there, and I love those brothers because and sisters. It's so it's so interesting to see elders now, women of African descent. Of course, black women kind of African been cutting their hair short for years, and so are women here. Uh, in the diaspora, but you know, the sisters would come in, we sitting there talking, and, and many cats Ghanaian, but they're not exclusive Ghanaian. Was it? They were having this whole discussion about the World Cup, and I'm sitting there listening. And so, you know, I asked them who you cheered for because by then, of course, Morocco had been eliminated, and of course, Morocco is a fascinating subject in itself because you know, Morocco put out a lot of the colonial masters. Uh, you know, Morocco knocked out several of the colonial masters, and they couldn't take France. And so I asked them, I said, who y'all, who y'all cheering for? And, and without hesitation, they all said Argentina, which, which tracks with what I've been reading and hearing in terms of how this kind of anti, I'm going to say anti-European, because it's obviously like kind of Africans playing on those European teams, but there's a sense that we don't cheer for them. And, and, and listening to them, little by little, they tracked all the players on all the teams, not just Argentina, not just France. And we know, of course, they all talk. In fact, one brother was like, you know, my wife would make me go to church if <laughs> she didn't have to work to, on Sunday because it's, it's going to be, I think, 10 or 11 a.m. our time, Eastern Standard Time. I don't say our time because we're global. He said, but she got to go to work, so I'm going to be watching the game. And then we were just laughing. And then, and then as we were talking, uh, the Kenyan brother said, one of the Kenyan brothers was like, yeah, man, you know, I went to this party the other night and we were talking about, and, and the party was thrown by one of the embassies because we know that almost 50 either heads of state from the continent of Africa or representatives of heads of state were in D.C. Uh, this week for the U.S.-Africa summit. And so I asked them, I said, what y'all think about that? And I'm sitting in the chair, and they, you know, because I don't know football. My nephew, that's my nephew's sport. So, but I, but I know enough to know some of the major players, you know, Mbappe, and obviously they all cheering for Messi and, and Argentina. And and then 
without a beat, they went into politics with the same precision, the same detail, the same command, the same passion and argument that they had been talking about soccer 30 seconds before. This is the difference. This is an, this is an amazing thing to hear. So whereas here, even somebody may argue who was better, Kobe or Jordan, or, you know, you see the young boy, John Moran, or the, or the Grizzlies going, and then you say, okay, what about, you know, this uh, policy shift with uh, sentencing crack cocaine? Huh? What? Not them. When I tell you they went little by little through the thing, and of course, I've been tracking the USA-Africa summit very closely. Uh, I don't know if, you, if, if folks are paying attention. I know a lot of people are. Uh, Adesoje and Ndoku were on WBAI in, uh, in New York on Tuesday, and they told us Monday night in office hours they were going to be there with Milton Alamadi, uh, the Pacifica Network station out of, of New York, talking about this. And uh, Baba Oz was talking about it as well in our global conversation on Monday night. But listening to this whole discussion about the United States trying to get involved in, uh, in Africa by bringing these African heads of state here and the pushback they got, because the Africans, many of these African countries, I mean, there are a couple of things, big ticket items. They want two seats. They want to be, first of all, they want to be included in the G20 summit. And I think that's going to happen. You can't stop that. Uh, they want two permanent seats on the UN Security Council, you know, voting permanent seats. And they're saying, well, you know, we'll get you a seat. No, 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 we ain't say, do we start it? We ain't say one, we say two. And, 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 and they want support for positions they hold in common on climate change, on education, on healthcare infrastructure. It's very interesting. And, and so in listening to these brothers, we're having this, this conversation. I said, what do y'all expect out of this? And it was very interesting. They said, you know, our leaders, one by one, and they started going through the countries. Ruto, the new guy to Kenya. Paul Kagame probably took up most of the conversation. If we were tracking what's happening, uh, what happened over this summit, yo, Kagame was like, we're not picking between China and the United States. And of course, the United States trying to horn in because China is all over the place in, in, in Africa. But I mean, you know, we were talking about the coups in West Africa because you saw that uh, there were about five countries that were not invited to the summit. Uh, Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Sudan. Eritrea were not invited. But in West Africa, of those countries, uh, Mali has had two coups. Uh, Guinea has had a coup d'etat. Uh, Burkina Faso has had two. Uh, Sudan had an attempted coup. Um, Guinea-Bissau has had an attempted coup. Um, Niger coup. And the United States has trained the military officers that led the coup in at least three of those countries. In fact, there's a place right down the street from where this game going to be played today in Georgia called a school for the Americans. They're good for training people to overthrow governments. Haiti, Dominican Republic, right here in Georgia. So Cop City is just a partner domestically of the international chaos that the United States government has been doing for years. And, and I bring all this up to say, and listening to these brothers in a barbershop, talking about politics, passionately, you know, agreeing, disagreeing, agreeing to disagree, but all in a very deeply informed level and me as an African in the diaspora, listening to this conversation, it was, it was fascinating to me because we arrived at a similar place. The question we always have to ask, wherever we are as human, pe human beings, certainly people have say, what is leadership? And what does leadership mean? So if you can't trust your leaders, 
you know, you were talking about Paul Kagami. You guys done incredible things in Rwanda. One of the brothers who a Ghanaian cat who spent time in Rwanda, he said, man, this country is looking beautiful. At the same time, the guys were pressing. And he's involved in other places. The Democratic Republic of Congo is beefing with Rwanda on the eastern border of DRC. That goes all the way back. You start talking about the World War. This is the one where the uh, the cat that was exchanged for Brittany Griner, Griner was selling guns to everybody who wanted the guns. And so, you know, in that conversation, I'm listening to them and trying to really figure out what are we talking about? And as an African person from the diaspora who kind of has a rapport with some of these cats because I spend time with them, I, I asked, I said, you know, what can we do in the diaspora and what, what should our position be? This was before Joe Biden made the quote unquote soft apology to, to, to the U.S. Africa summit where he said, you know, we have our original sin and by our, I mean his and his ancestors, I'm not claiming that because I'm a victim of it, was slavery. He said, so many men and women left your continent in chains coming here and this is our original sin. Okay, so are you deepening the sin now? Because these leaders, I saw a signing agreement, uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, they had Zambia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, they they making a, a commitment to uh, allow these private companies to mine their minerals, cobalt and copper. Cobalt, DRC, pr provides over 70% of the world's cobalt. And I think Zambia is number two. The Chinese want in, but the United States trying to get in there and get these businesses in. And it's fascinating because Zambia owes all this money and like, I think it was 46% of the, I think they had like $17 billion in foreign debt, is owed 46% to BlackRock. That's right, private equity firm. He and I say, some of y'all probably got retirement funds and got some money in, 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 in BlackRock. But this kind of aggressive attempt to insert private business, that's really what this summit was about. And so I asked him, you know, well, what can we do? What should we be doing? And the, the, the answer, the general answer was unanimous. We should know more about what's going on and we should inject ourselves in U.S. foreign policy in ways because we're here. We should play our position and strengthen that critique of American foreign policy. And in exchange, what the kind of Africans should be doing is continuing to press on the condition of their relatives in the United States. Fascinating to me. I mean, just fascinating to have this conversation now because that strengthens everybody. Those would say, for example, on the question of reparations, if this man gonna get up and tell these continental Africans that the original sin is slavery. Now, if that had been John Kennedy in 1960 or 61, then Kwame Nkrumah would have said, yeah, so what up, so what's up with reparations for our cousins? But see, his government gets destabilized. If that was Patrice Lumumba telling Ralph Bunch from the UN, now the American Negro, I don't know if y'all got any, but we Pan-Africanists over here, but you know, we have a diaspora and we should be thinking about the diaspora as well. Because remember, John Clark, Carlos Moore, so many others went to the United Nations and protested after the CIA in collusion with the Belgians and everybody else took Patrice Lumumba out. This is a different day though. This same United States government, a later iteration of it, now trying to suck up to continental African leaders when the United States and these European countries have a long record of destabilizing African governments, which continues to this day. Like I said, these West African coups, the United States got their fingers in a lot of it. And this is the first summit that has been had in the United States since uh, Barack Obama. And remember Barack Obama with the Young African Leaders Initiative, you know, fast forward to now, Kamala Harris said they're going to uh, spend 
tens of millions of dollars to expand that leadership initiative uh, that we, we Howard hosted a site for the Young African Leaders Initiative. And I you know, talked and had conversations with those uh, young people. And by young people, I mean like 30-somethings, maybe early 40-somethings, late 20-somethings, professionals, doctors, lawyers, technocrats, administrators, politicians. Uh, but they, what the United States is doing, trying to engender uh, a relationship with these key actors so they can penetrate that market. Soft power, as Joseph Nye and many others used to call it. And so when we think about that and have that conversation with those brothers, I left there reminded, and I said, Sarah, I'm going to say something about this, reminded that we have to be much more mindful of our presence, not just domestically in any particular country, but how we connect our domestic struggles to each other globally. That was a conversation we had with Monday night and officers. So anyway, so I, I went back to the house and did a little bit more work. And then I went down to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Uh, we celebrated, as you know, you and I talked uh, late Thursday about uh, the retirement. We had a retirement celebration for a towering figure. This is this is somebody we should do it. You should know her because she got another generation to work, but she ain't got to go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture every day now. Although at, at, at the end, at the hand of Lonnie Bunch, the director of the Smithsonian, uh, the new director of the museum, the African American History Museum, uh, Kevin. Young announced that uh, Kinshasa Holman Conwell, who is from Atlanta here, um, born and raised in Atlanta, went to school out on the West Coast, got a Bachelor's of Fine Arts at Howard University, where she met her husband, Houston Conwell, the brilliant artist, now an ancestor. You see his cosmograms in the floor of the Schomburg, in the floor of the New York African Burial Ground, a federal building there. That's Houston Conwell's work. Just a, just a powerful couple. Kinshasa Conwell, who was uh, deputy director at the Studio Museum of Harlem for many years, uh, worked for the American Association of Museums, uh, curated exhibits for the Museum of the American Indian, the branch in New York, and then became the deputy director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2005. That's when uh, I was very fortunate to meet her. And, you know, Kinshasa is director now, uh, associate director emeritus of the National Museum. She retired. Uh, she she had played, she announced in the summer she's going to retire in December. And going to that celebration there in the museum, and yeah, probably a couple hundred people there, and person after person giving tribute. When I say if there were 10 people who spoke, seven of them were Black women, she surrounded herself with black women. It was so funny because it's almost like the running joke is Lonnie Bunch was the director of the museum and then Kinshasa and all these sisters. And when I tell you they raised money, oh my God. I'm looking around to see, did y'all, I know somebody videotaping this. I pulled my phone out and I started videotaping because, and I know they did, but I, I just wanted to sit back and sit with the conversation because this sister, I mean, a brilliant fundraiser. You're talking about somebody who, helped lead the task force that raised a quarter billion dollars. And at one point, one of the sisters who, who was on her fundraising team, on that fundraising team, said, you see that donor wall over there? That wall doesn't exist without this sister right here. And there are probably some people here, it's the first time you've heard her name. And I tell you, you know, it wasn't just her. And she got up and just did a, you know, gave remarks. And just, I was just, it was just really something. But this is a scholar. I mean, when she, she did a whole book on Motown, ain't nothing like the real thing. Kinshasa like the country, K-I-N-S-H-A-S-H-A. -S 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 her uh, 
her birth name, uh, surname is Holman, H-O-L-M-A-N. Parents here uh, from Georgia. And then Conwell, uh, C-O-N-W-I-L-L. Get a chance to look her up. Please do that. Uh, she did exhibition catalogs when she was at the Studio Museum, Treasures from the Studio Museum. Uh, she did exhibition catalogs on William Williams. Um, I mean, any number of people. Norman Davis. Uh, she did one on Black vernacular culture testimony. My favorite of hers is one called To Conserve a Legacy. She did a whole exhibition catalog and compendium on art by Black artists in the collections of historically Black colleges and universities. Those of you from Houston, you know, Texas Southern, you know, the great artist, uh, John Biggers. Of course, here at Spelman, uh, you have the murals there, Fisk University. I mean, so, so much work. And Shasta compiled it. And then she, when she came to the museum, in addition to doing fundraising, she also directed publications. So if you get the book, um, what's the name of the book? Oh, To Dream a World Anew, of course. To Dream a World Anew, that is the book at the day when they open the museum, when they finally got it open, that's the book that kind of tracks and curates how they did it and then kind of shows you what was in that initial founding collection. So uh, Kinshasa edited that and she would be first to tell you, well, my name is on it, but we all did it. And everybody did do it, but she's the kind of straw that stirs the drink, the pole around which everything revolves. And uh, we returned fighting uh, the exhibition they did on World War One. Uh, they asked me to come down and talk with the brother who, uh, really put it together, uh, who is military himself, who has a, a directs museum in, in Illinois. And um, we had that conversation, but Kinshasa kind of led the project that created the book. And uh, the last one she she did in her, in her capacity before she retired is uh, Make Good the Promises on Reconstruction. And they've got a major Afrofuturism exhibit that's gonna be opening in the next few months. But anyway, I went through all that to say that in that room, listening to people talk about her and listening to her talk and just being in that space, you know, after having come out of that conversation with these kind of Africans, you know, I, I, I'm sitting there trying to absorb it and, and ask myself, what does leadership look like? And who does it benefit? Because there's you know, mixed opinions on museums. I, I've just uh, finished reading uh, this book by uh, Shimrit Lee, Decolonized Museums where she says, you know, museums are not good places. And I agree with her wholeheartedly. You know, museums, like I often say, you know, I used to tell students, we call it T-S-W-T, T-S-W-T. The S we took, <laughs> so all the museums. But of course, the African-American museum had to build this collection from scratch. So what you see there is a very different kind of conversation that's being had. So what do you do when you assemble all this stuff? You go in the basement in the, first, on the, in the ground floor, and one of the things on display are personal effects from Harriet Tubman. Well, those things actually Charles Bloxham donated to the museum. Like a bunch went in and collected it and from Philly because Harriet Tubman's descendants had entrusted them with Charles Bloxham, and he had them for decades. And he now entrusted to the museum. So you can go see those things. And we talked about this, in fact, uh, one of the times I got to spend uh, a decent amount of time with Kinshasa before there was a building or anything. They were Their offices were somewhere else on the mall. Uh, I interviewed her at, for uh, Ebony Magazine. I wrote a little article. And I was very, you know, I was honored to be able to do that. And just sitting with her, I mean, just, just a beautiful spirit. But one of the things I raised is, and then later in another uh, essay later, I wrote, you know, this is a shrine for us. These, these museums are spirit centers. 
You ever walk over to the museum going where Emmett Till's casket is? It's a different thing, man. That energy is real. And, and so standing there in that space, listening to them talk and thinking about that conversation that I had earlier, I'm saying, what does it mean to be a leader for people? For these kind of Africans, they've got countries, countries they're trying to help dissolve borders around while maintaining their own distinct identities, trying to build a better federation, even as they have tensions with the elected leaders or the appointed leaders or the coup leaders or whoever call themselves representing the country, the state. Those tensions are there. One of the things Kamala Harris raised at the um, at the summit was that, you know, right now, 40 percent of the human beings on the continent of Africa are under 25 years old. And by 2050, that number is going to go to 80 percent. Africa's the future. Africa's the present. Africa's the past. Africa is. And, you know, for us to cut ourselves off from this natural link and then the city of the United States try to assert itself as almost having what we want to engender. Hold on. Stop. That's my cousin. So and you can't just curate who you want to bring in this conversation. And then you can't just deputize people who look like us and say they're the leaders of the black community. No, that's not going to work because we can have conversations outside of that. So we have to have governance conversations. And I think about that in the context of the fact that while I was there at the museum Thursday night, I had looked on the schedule of events for the summit. And there were like over 50 events the State Department curated. Howard had a couple of them. What are the themes? Trade, business, trade, opportunity, business. All this hyper-capitalist pushing, and I'm saying, okay, trade, yeah, but what are you trying to do? You're trying to insert yourself, and then all the, you know, the boilerplate language about rights and, and gender, and okay, all these very important conversations, but what's your angle? And then I realized that the convening they had to talk about this connection, even as they had a couple of these uh, off-center uh, events, like the Museum of African Art, the Smithsonian, the big event they had to bring people together, the first ladies, many of them of uh, the continent were there, was at the museum, the very museum I was standing in Thursday night, the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And then I saw the pictures. Idris Elba was there. You got celebrities there, you know, all, you know, blinking and then they talking. Kamala Harris is up talking. I'm like, this propaganda. Even as you see Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Lloyd Austin, the brother who's the Secretary of Defense, having side meetings with Djibouti, where they got that huge military base, the United States. There are 20, at least 29 military bases the United States has in Africa right now. And they got a black man who's Secretary of Defense. Well, he's he not a black leader. He's a Secretary of Defense, any more than Barack Obama was a black leader. He's President of the United States. They got a foreign policy interest. And Austin and Blinken, this week, over the last several days, met with uh, Niger, Somalia, Angola. Why do they want Angola? Angola got strategic resources. They got oil. They got, and China is all up in there. You can't push them out, though. 29 military bases, 12 of them in the Sahel. Meaning what? These countries you didn't invite, they had these coups, and you trained many of the coup leaders. Now you mad at them or something because you can't work it out. You and France having to beat Macron. His wife was at the museum the other day. She toured the museum because the French ambassador was there praising Kinshasa, who won the highest uh, uh, civilian medal that they give in France. They gave it to Kinshasa Conwell for her work on re-return fighting, which was on the black presence in World War I, a global black presence. But 
the wife of the current president of France had just toured the museum. She and Tab, I'm like, what the hell are y'all doing? Y'all trying to claw your way into these black conversations at the same time that we're not paying attention like we should. And by we, I mean, I'm talking very now specifically about the Africans in the United States. So with all that swirling in my head, realizing that I had made up my mind, I was going to come down here the next day. I said, let me think about what it means to be a leader and how we are very, those of us in the United States, people of African descent, you know, it's very difficult for us to come up with a sense of collective weakness that we can then convert into collective action. So really, as I kind of transition and talk just for a few minutes about Deion Sanders and, and what's going on here, it isn't Deion Sanders. It's the fact that many of us got pulled in to focus on this decision by this athlete turned coach to go somewhere else. And it, and it evoked a moment where we're paying attention for five seconds. And I said, this is an opportunity. Week four last to talk about the nature of why we're even interested in it and what that says about us and our ways of knowing and our governance formations and how we deal with cultural meaning making, those categories that we have lined out as our African studies framework. And then last week, part two, to talk about the nature of sacrifice. What are these institutions and what does it mean to be somewhere in a place like an Ed Temple or a Joe Gillum Sr.? What does it mean to be uh, a Wilma Rudolph, a world-class athlete running for HBCU and all the Tiger Bells? What does it mean to be uh, a coach that was also a professor and spent decades in a place? What does it mean to build a, a tradition and to join a tradition, whether it be John McClendon in basketball or John Chaney and Vivian Stringer in basketball at HBCU and then lead for HWCU at a different time and place? And then what does it mean intergenerationally? Because different generations have different assignments. But I'm looking at Kinshasa Conwell. I'm looking at a sister who literally came out of the Black Power period. It's the period of Afro-Cobra. You know, you know, look up Afro-Cobra, uh, the African commune of bad, relevant artists, Afro-Cobra, the great Jeff Donaldson, and so many others. And there are a handful of those cats still around. Uh, Akili Anderson was one of the youngsters in that, in that movement, kind of came in and he's still on faculty at Howard. Uh, you get uh, recent books, Abdullah Kalamat did a very good book called The Wall of Respect, what was going on in Chicago at the time. I mean, the, this is the black arts movement in, in music, in art, in plastic art, visual art, whether it be sculpture, whether it be painting, all that. and Kinshasa comes out of that. And then as an institution builder, she's able to leverage that because every institute, every society has its institutional people, its bureaucrats, its administrators. She had those skills to combine that. And now there's another generation, two generations after her. So the people now responsible for, in, for, for kind of maintaining a presence in these institutions that are ostensibly for black people, whether it be a museum dedicated to studying black experiences, whether it be a university or a college that is ostensibly for the training of black youth and the education of black youth, those people who do that work, that administrative, that bureaucratic class, if it were the continent of Africa, there's also a bureaucratic class, but it, it operates a little differently. And then when you put time and space in it, different generations receive different orders, but the social structure around us continues to pound at us because what we want is not what that social structure wants. That social structure wants, as John Henry Clark said, from black people, you know what the modern world wants? Something that they want and they don't wanna pay for and they don't care. 
So I'm saying all that to say that, you know, coming down here for me in this question of part three of a three-part kind of overlay, which was engendered by a cat who ain't asked for none of this, part three of it really for me is a question of what are we talking about when we think about the possibilities of collective action? And what does a moment like this give us an opportunity to discuss? So watch this press conference. I kind of felt, you know, we were talking about this yesterday, kind of felt a little bad for Dion. He looked hurt. I know that JSU on his chest must have been burning a hole in it because you work Colorado, bro. And ain't nobody mad at you. You do what you do. And, and look, I put it this way, whoever's mad, I'm not one of them people. Because, you know, like I said last week, this brother is like SU. He's not SU, but he's got an SU vibe in this sense. SU, E-C-H-U or E-S-U, uh, the whole idea of this, this, this change agent, this person or this entity, this energy, not completely equivalent to SU, but uh, that, that makes you change. So, so I'm listening to Deion saying this. Just a quick thing. He said, um, he said, everything I said I would do, I did. I'm thinking, well, that's not true, but I, I get why you would think it's true. Man, got to put a spin on it, right? If you can. He said, I tried my darndest to make it happen. Yes, facts. He said, I couldn't do it by myself. Okay. He said, it's not my calling. I, you know, but you'll see when, 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 when we gone, what we did, what we wanted to do. Okay. Man pleading his case. You in Atlanta, city black as hell. You about to be in the Mercedes-Benz dome, displacement, gentrification, notwithstanding. Seats about 70,000 people. You, and, I mean, they got children here. They busting children in, come to the Celebration Bowl. And the Celebration Bowl, I'm going to talk about classics in a minute. The Celebration Bowl is a contrivance. It's a recent phenomenon. I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means in terms of classics in a moment. But listening to him, he then said, what did he say? He said, um, I would love to go to another conference. Is the rest of the school ready? Right. You would love to go to another conference. You want to take Jackson, you want to take this university to another conference. Well, you know, that's your vision. God, and I love, I love how he starts out talking about his vision. He said, my plan, God's purpose. My plan, God's purpose. People be putting stuff on God. Then he said, you know, I'm a winner. He said, you know, and it got to a point where I had to have a conversation with the Lord. He said, it's funny how y'all want to accept I had a conversation with the Lord coming here, but then Lord tell me something else. Y'all don't like it. I'm like, bruh. But the look on his face was almost like he was hurt. Now, let me pause here and say this. If you're part of the social structure, unfortunately, it isn't just white sports fans or fanboys. I mean, it's also some American Negroes who don't know nothing about HBCUs and apparently very little about black culture in terms of institutional formations. You know, you don't really have an informed opinion on this, but you should still voice your opinion because what's important is whether it's informed or not is part of the dialogue. But I'm just, I just wanted to say that before I say what, what come in. It was so clear. A, this was a governance conversation Deion Sanders had. He owned this town when he was with the Braves and the Falcons and Cowboys. I mean, you know, whatever. You know, but this is different because the attitude toward black institutions, as we talked about two weeks ago, is often that they somehow are deficient. I'm a product of an HBCU. I went to one. I work at one. And that's a deliberate commitment. And it's not because I couldn't have gone anywhere else. 
There are people who are at many any institution because they can't go anywhere else. And there are people who are institutions because they made a choice and could have gone anywhere else. We talked about that last week. Whether it be Margaret Walker at Jackson State, who could have gone many times after, who started that institute, which now bears her name, whether it's Ed Temple, who could have gone anywhere. Well, you know, and you know, you know, I talked to, you know, anyway, we talked about that last week. Go back and look at that. But when he says, you know, I'm a change agent. And then follows it up with, I would love, I would love to go to another conference. Oh, well, now it's gone off the rails because you came here saying you want to lift everybody. And now and the Lord told you something different. No problem, man. No harm, no foul. And I'm so glad you spent these three years in Jackson because it allows us to perhaps with this little window of focus we have, have a deeper conversation. And he said, but is the baseball team ready? Is the rest of athletics ready? He said, I'm not just here. I'm just a football coach. It's not just a, he said, first of all, he said, it's not just about football to me. It's about safety. Brought up safety again. Fire alarms going off three o'clock in the morning. Well, bruh, if you've been at black schools, you're going to hear that fire alarm. Oh, but guess what? Having gone to Temple and Ohio State, you're going to hear that fire alarm. Don't play. I'm sure that fire alarm is pulled at Florida State, too. But the social structure will engender that like black colleges are so different. Now, mind you, after having been shorted by not tens of millions, not hundreds of millions, but billions of dollars collectively, HBCUs, and still pumping stuff out, you have this, this kind of, and I understood he wasn't attacking as much as he was hurt. I think he was hurt. The look on his face was hurt. And he says, it's not my occupation. I wanted to bring everything along. I'm just a football coach. But you said it wasn't just about football. Oh, and I realized he's talking about athletics. And if you understand it properly, you do understand that athletics drove a great deal and drives a great deal of HBCU culture like it does in HWCUs. But here's the thing where we make the turn. HBCUs are different. He, he, he went on to say something, and I want to, I think this is a great quote where he says, you know, he, 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 you know, he, he glossed a Bible verse. He loved Bible verses. And I ain't mad because I, I hear people use Bible verses. I listen and I'm I'm processing that in terms of ways of knowing like you would use the Odu Ifa. You using a phrase or or, or say by in ancient Egypt, you using a phrase to make a deeper point. Africana ways of knowing, cultural meaning making, you basically using that in a proverbial sense. So he says, of all your gifts of understanding, you should get us an understanding of where change really starts. Okay. Let's get us an understanding of where change really starts. First of all, where are you trying to take it? You want to lead a conference? There are four conferences for black uh, colleges in this country. You got Division II with the CIAA and, and the SIEC. Some of y'all know about the CIAA. In fact, the best run small school, uh, small athletics uh, tournament, black, white polka dot in the country is the CIAA. I mean, you know, and you you got roots there on 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 in 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 the Carolinas and on the East Coast. So, you know, CIAA time it's time to it's time to do that. You know, CIAA. So what you I mean? So but you're talking about the SWAC or the MIAC, the D1, right? Well, you know, I get why you want to leave, but you want to leave because you think that's helping our people, and it will help athletics. It might even help Jackson State. And then maybe one or two other schools would make the jump. But guess what? 
what is the what, what is the purpose of these HBCUs and what's the trajectory? That's what we talked about last week. So let's talk about the classics for a minute. That here, the Celebration Bowl. And there are a number of good books. If you get Michael Hurd's book, he did a hundred years of HBCU football book, probably about 10, 15 years ago, Michael Hurd, H-U-R-D. Uh, my man Derek White did a whole book on Jake Gaither and Florida A&M, uh, which is a great book on in the history of black college football. Um, and there are several others, but, you know, Derek's book is good. And that's a good. And then, you know, Hurd's book, if you can get your hands on it. I think it goes from like 1892 to 1992. And that's where I want to start. Classics. We just passed. Last week, I think they played the game. Johnson C. Smith University, formerly Biddle College. Some of y'all J.C. Smith along. Y'all know about them Bulls. Golden Bulls, I think they are in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, here in the United States, for those who are not in the States right now. Johnson C. Smith, when it was Biddle, Biddle College, played Livingstone, Livingstone in North Carolina. Livingstone College, there was a brother named J.C. Price. J.C. Price was president of Livingstone. They called him Booker T. Washington in North Carolina. Look up J.C. Price. He died young, buried on campus. In 1892, two days after Christmas, they played the first what they call commemorative classic. That was the first classic in black college football, 1892. They just played again, 130 years. I would love to lead a conference. Slow your roll. Oh, well, actually, you did lead a conference, so now we can resume. But the commemorative classic continues to be played. And people look at that blue turf. Was it Boise? Probably was it Boise State got that blue turf out there. But I'll tell you who else got blue turf. Livingstone, as they call us. And you see the artificial turf out there, and they play the game, and it's like, wow. Now, this ain't Ohio State versus Michigan. Ain't supposed to be Ohio State versus Michigan. It's Livingstone versus Johnson C. Smith. And for that alum, for that group, that is enough. It's better than enough. So let's talk about this. Um, there are dozens of classics, and they're named different things. You got classics in HBCU world, and some of you all, this is why I hope you'll put in the uh in the chat here in Nubia and then later in YouTube, y'all start lining it up. Line up all the people you know. I look at the got parents who John C. Spring. Look at this. Look at this. Aggie Pride. I really hate we. I hate. I hate y'all left the Miac too, Jerome. Oh, I hate y'all left the Miac. Hampton went to the Big South. A and T left. The grass ain't greener, y'all. The grass is not greener, and that's not even the purpose. Yeah, I hate y'all left. I, I, you know, I went to Tennessee State, which they used to call. I hated this analysis. I hate it now. As a kid. I felt differently because I didn't know as much when I was an undergraduate. They used to call Tennessee State the the, uh, the Notre Dame of HBCUs. Why? Because it was an independent. It played anybody it wanted. We would meet up and play FAM. We played Grambling, Jackson State, this kind of thing. And then they joined the Ohio Valley Conference. And it was a mess. And it's still a mess. But anyway, I digress. The point is that um, when you look at the classics, Deion Sanders, he started the press conference by saying, he said, I never said there was going to be a tombstone at Jackson State with my name on it, that I was going to be here. No, he never said that. Now, he said he would get a class through it, but, but that's neither here nor there. I'm not tripping off Deion. Again, I want to thank that brother publicly and just broadly. Thank you, because we had to have this conversation. If it takes you to do it, that's a beautiful thing, brother. You know, you talk about God, God used you. It's a way of knowing. It's a beautiful thing. But he said, I, I never said there would be a, so there won't be a Deion Sanders classic. There won't be a Deion Sanders classic at Jackson State. Uh, however, uh, there is a, 
uh, Pete Richardson classic, the Southern University plays, the longtime coach at Southern. My alma mater, Big John Merritt, who came out of Jackson State, went to Tennessee State and coached there, brought Alvin Cat Coleman. Somebody dropped Alvin Cat Coleman's name in the in the YouTube chat uh, last week, talking about these great coaches, the great uh, Gillum, the great uh, Joe Gillum Sr., whose son, of course, was quarterback. Uh, my brother-in-law, Randy Fuller, his father, might as well say godfather, uh, Coach Gillum. There's a John Merritt classic in Nashville. You have a whole genre of HBCU games that are named, not just football, basketball too, for these titans who were coaches who were there for decades, who shaped generations of young people. Then you got a whole uh, a whole sense of, of rivalries. Y'all know them rivalries. Them North Carolina rivalries, Central versus A&T. Of course, you got the Bayou Classic, which I'll get to in a minute, but there's a whole category of rivalries. People play each other, and these are games that Black people take very seriously. Yeah, it's not USC versus UCLA. It ain't supposed to be. And as much as you might put a little Black dance team together on the white school, and they are looking like, what a spectacle. It's very nice. It's very different. It's very different when you show up in a different kind of conversation. Virginia State take a trip down and versus Norfolk State, or, you know, you name it. And it isn't just basketball. Football is often basketball. But certainly football, that's another one, the rivalries. And there's so many of them. Y'all can start naming around. And then there are the classics. And here's where it gets interesting. Because Deion says, you know, we're looking what we did with attendance. Bruh, Jackson State was leading the attendance and swag before you even thought about applying to Jackson State or anybody reached out to you. Now, if you want to see the biggest attendance at a HBCU Classic, you probably want to go to Birmingham. When Alabama State plays Alabama AM, that's the Magic City classic. They regularly hit and exceed 60,000 people. That's what they do. It, it, ain't, it ain't no, you know, you know, no, no, no. Don't get it twisted now. But these classics are more than just football games. I'm coming to that in a second because these classics, I mean, you got the, the Florida classic, of course, the Biden classic. Uh, you said the Orange Blossom classic. Uh, what's that one? Come on, y'all, Texas Negroes. Uh, uh, I think it's called, it used to be, now it's called, I think, the State Farm Classic in Dallas. Because, you know, so many of them grand the Negroes. You know, Louisiana, Texas, then after California, Nevada. I mean, people, you know, had these connections. They meet up in Dallas and, and, they, and they hash it out. Uh, there's Morehouse Tuskegee. Morehouse Tuskegee been playing for 80 years. I mean, come on, y'all. There's the, uh, uh, then they're the ones that come after that. Circle City in Indianapolis. You know, I see Mississippi Valley State's coach is going with Deion Sanders to uh, Colorado. Well, I remember as an undergrad at Tennessee State, you know, Tennessee State playing Mississippi Valley when Jerry Rice was playing Mississippi Valley in Indianapolis at the Circle City Classic. These classics, like the Circle City Classic, for many years the Urban League would do to Whitney Young, and now it's kind of been revived in a way in New York. It isn't just about the game. It's about using the game to attract young people and tell them about HBCUs, to bring the alumni together, to do public service. These are very, HBCUs are different. It's a different kind of conversation. So these classics are, and then there are whole creations of the recent years of which the Celebration Bowl is one. Celebration Bowl goes back maybe, what, 10 years maybe? 2020, 2012, I think, where you put together the MIAC champion versus the SWAT champion. But there was a classic that started in 2011 through a conversation between two administrations, one from Morehouse and one from Howard. Uh, my friend and brother, 16th president of Howard University, Sidney Rabot, out of Detroit, good brother, working class college man, uh, Wayne State University, and Robert Franklin, used to be president of Morehouse. 
they got together and said, we should put something together. So they put something together in 2011 called the Nation's Classic. Played in Labor Day weekend in D.C. And the whole idea was we're using the game as an excuse. What? Yeah, because we're going to have a week of activities. So Morehouse and Spelman would come to D.C. And for a week, they had the debates, you know, Morehouse and Spelman versus Howard debate teams. You would have a symposia, college presidents, faculty, students, alumni, talking about the nature of an HBCU. And for several years, 2011, 2014, we planned out this whole symposium, and the symposium was called More Than a Game. The game is on Saturday, but starting Monday, stuff all the way through, boom, 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 boom. And then on Sunday, chapel, somebody from one of the schools would preach. Robert Franklin preached one year, Beverly Tatum when she's president of Spelman. I mean, this, you know, because these games are an excuse. See, so fanboys, social structure fanboys, and the Negroes who follow them. You should now probably start when you start when you hear this and you say, "Well, I think that in those situations, I just uh, want to say that you should just be quiet because you don't know nothing about the nation of Islam." No, anyway, you don't know nothing about HBCUs because this is a different conversation. So at least inform yourself. So if this is about skyboxes and bigger stadiums and budgets, okay, all that's important. Is this about bad management or crime? Okay, all that's important, but don't lose sight of the purpose. It's a very different conversation. And I, and I remember, you know, many times sitting with these elders and listening to these folk talk about how they see this and put it in and never forget that even today, going down celebration bowls, I kind of wind this up, thinking about the nature of possibility the game is one element. Now, we all know the marching bands. In fact, I don't know how many people knew that um, February 18th, 2023, so about a week, a little less than a week before W.B. Du Bois' birthday, the 18th of February, 2023, in a stadium that seats about 26,500 in Montgomery, Alabama, the Alabama State Stadium, will be the next Honda Battle of the Bands. Yeah, the Battle of the Bands. In other words, the marching bands, they used to be in, they'd be in Atlanta year after year, but they moved it to, to, uh, to, to Montgomery and Alabama State Stadium. Alabama State got a stadium of 26,500. They can expand it. I think the, they can expand to 50, room to expand. They built it. I forget how many millions it cost them to build. But, you know, HBCUs are not begging for celebrities to come upgrade them. Unless by upgrade, you mean trying to become blackface white schools. We're never going to do that. We talked about that last week. Who's got an angel investor like T-Boone's picking? Who ain't going to put a million? Ain't going to put 10 million? Who's going to put 50, 100 million dollars in something? So that your whole athletic budget is run off the interest of money from somebody who knows. And guess what? Is that's, if that's your objective, go with God. But understand that if we are serious about having a different kind of conversation, producing a different kind of of thinking class, uh, a different kind of managing and bureaucratic class. And this isn't uh, to say that this is the way we always have to be, but it does say that based on what we have been, we have to think differently. Well, you know, we'll go over there this evening, this afternoon, in a few minutes, I think the game starts around noontime. And I'm gonna look at children. Come on now. These children, I'm not talking about children with uh with a uh, war eagle paint on their face going to an Auburn game versus Alabama in the Iron Bowl. 
that game can go and stay in hell. No, I'm talking about children who see a band and at six years old say, I want to go to that school. You do that. You do that at Stanford. Nah. I'm talking about people who ain't never going to none of these schools. See, I decided to put my old faithful African-American college in line. So I ain't going to start set tripping them. You know, I'm going to act like, you know, the, the neutral. I'm for all HBCUs because it's true. So I'm going to start set tripping. It's going to be some Negroes get loud. We probably all going to laugh till we cry. There may be a split second when we think the fight going to jump off and then it dissolves into laughter and everybody breathes a sigh of relief. This is a different kind of conversation we talk about. Now, this is a contrived bowl. Cricket. The Cricket Celebration Bowl, like the Honda Battle of the Bands. Because these companies, just like they're trying to penetrate the African continent, African market, they want to penetrate the African market here. And there are those who say that there is no African market to penetrate. You know, we don't have collective wealth. Okay, let's say how that's true. It's primarily, it's true in one vein, not primarily, but it's true in one vein because we don't think about how, enough about how we engender and collect resources to empower ourselves. And we've done so much with lack of access to resources. But part of the way you bang on the system is to have a place and have institutions where you can think through why you need to bang on the system. HBCUs right now are not that place. Again, standing in the museum, watching my friend Kinshasa Conwell and watching that generation of mostly black women, black men too. I mean, James Early was there, worked at Smithsonian for years, but I'm looking at Jackie Serer, I'm looking at Fleur, uh, and this uh, was Fleur's last name. Um, anyway, it'll come to me. Pasteur, Fleur Pasteur. I'm looking at so many of these, and I'm talking about I'm talking about heavyweight black women. I'm talking about black women who raise you 10, 15, 20 million dollars and then employ all your people. You know what I'm saying? And then the younger generation they trained. You know, I'm watching them, I'm standing there listening to conversations, intergenerational conversations between this generation, this older generation is cycling out now to go and do more work, freed up to do more, and the generation they trained. And as I'm listening to those folks, I'm really thinking about what that generation they trained, what those of us like Charles Blackson helped train me, what's our obligation? Is it to pour into these institutions? Absolutely whether it be the museums, which are problematic, but we have them so we can stage something, even as the state has its own ideas about what to do, whether it's universities, which have never been the same as white schools, but, and not even, or, because this is where I'm going to end for now for a second. We have to see that these institutions are not the end goal. They are a means to an end. And what we're doing here with narrative and Nubia, that is another means to a goal that is the next iteration. Because when you truly control and have self-determination, you can then begin to dream that world. Again, Shasta and them always talk about and help us glimpse through the art, through the music, through the dance, through the cultural meaning making. You get to inhabit that world so that, you know, the Mercedes Benz don't, that's y'all's. Coca-Cola, we drink Coca-Cola and you turn around and give us a nickel and we're supposed to say thank you for our sponsors, whatever, Cricket. I ain't realize Cricket was still making whatever. Fine, Honda, whatever. But the whole idea is 
we have to engender that. And we take that momentum and then to dream a world and then implement a world. And so I thought I would end today with a key question, a couple of key questions. The first one I asked was at the beginning. You know, how do we define black leadership? If a coach is a leader, if somebody working a day shift on a job is a leader, if somebody sitting on the corner, listening to people and having a conversation is a leader, it is demonstrated by what they do say or take action to do that contributes to the we. Deion Sanders has done his job. And I'm, I'm for one grateful for it. And, you know, everybody ain't called the same thing. But the question I wanted to ask, that was the first of the two. The second question I had is, you know, what, if anything, does the present owe the past? Kinshasa said something very interesting the other night as she was making her remarks. She said, I don't want y'all anymore to talk about we are our ancestors' wildest dream. He said, don't say that. Our ancestors are our wildest dream. I mean, think about because they put it in the bank. You understand? We're here because of what they did. If they wasn't dreaming of us telling people who look like us that we want to uh, get a contract to get all the cobalt out of their country and all the copper out of their country so we can have these batteries and Black Rock can finance some more loans. That ain't the dream. You understand? But the question isn't what if anything does the present owe the past? Do we owe something to our ancestors? And then what? If anything, does the future owe the present? Because again, looking at these generations, I'm looking at my friend Jocelyn Amani, who is in museum work and who, who worked with Kinshasa now. I'm looking at these young people, my man Thomas, who was a, a student at Howard Law School, who worked with them when they were planning the museum. And he used to he crack me up talking about I'll be on lunch and I, all these women and me. And I learned so much just sitting there watching them in LaFont Plaza doing their business. It's like, I mean, what does the future or the present? Because people will say, it's my life. I, okay, it is your life. But what do you owe those who are working now with the idea in mind that you have the next, you got next and you got now? What does the present owe the future? What do we owe the future? And those are just some questions in my mind. I'm going to go ahead and watch this game. And, and more importantly, the game, not really. I'll be watching. Uh, come on, Internet. You're gonna be watching everybody. I know you are you are stuck. Um, only came in, which is ironic. I came in, I didn't know you there. We are. I didn't know that was gonna happen, but I came in because I'm can we no, even, I'm yeah, yeah, I know. Can we contemplate those questions without without study of self? And can we can we even start to ask those questions in our own realm without doing some work on understanding what the past is? How do you even contemplate that question without knowing what the past was to begin with? If yeah. everything starts with you right here That's and right. you have no momentum of memory, how do you even start asking that question? And, and what? how do you even envision a future without understanding what was before you? Because if you think you started everything, you know, as, as you were talking about, <laughs> That's right. That's right. About even the marching bands, like what was the African version, you know, 2000 years ago of, of a celebration bowl of a marching band. Like mm. are those that are those the things that we, we manifested out of the, the trauma of now, you know, to find joy and a sense of self. Absolutely. What we, well, you know, how do we, you know, what was the iteration of that before, before this interruption? 
Those are the questions. And the beautiful thing is that we have answers to them. I mean, we think of, and that's a great example. You can be a 30 second example. And we'll see when we go to the Nile Valley. You see etched in stone their musical celebrations. And when, when a new pharaoh was, and this isn't to say that the pharaonic work is, is prob, it's not problematic, because it's very problematic. You know, we have a dig that we're going to talk about that. In fact, there's a book by uh, Juan Carlos uh, Moreno Garcia, Juan Carlos Moreno Garcia called Ancient Egyptian Administration. This book is hella expensive. I don't know how much I say to get this book. But I wonder because he goes through, he edits this whole, how did administration work in ancient Egypt? But they had ritual moments, like the Hebsed Festival. You bring the whole nation together and the pharaoh got to go around this whole big ass block. We'll go there in Saqqara where Imhotep, the pyramid is. You got to do this ritual performance to show your vitality. You can't lead the nation if you're not vital. So man, I'm 75 years old. Oh, well, then you got to go around here seven times, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and we all watching. I mean, so fast forward, fast forward 5,000 years, I'm going to Mercedes, but this is an extension. We are coming to bear witness. I almost feel bad for Deion saying he'll be walking up there with that J oversized hat and his JSU. Everybody in this whole damn stadium know that you work for Colorado now. What? How are the people? Because see, this ain't about individuals, man. My granddaddy went to Jack State. My mama worked at Jack State camp. And now I'm looking at you like, we love you, bro, but you don't work here no more. Where TC at? Where the coach? (laughs) So I'm saying. I feel like like we're conditioned to, um, you know, leave space for the inane like we oh, yeah, we yeah, we've always sure. had to reconcile with the hypocrisy you know that's especially true. as black people you know it's mm-hmm. like oh oh you give me this bible but you enslave me and you be uh, and you're raping <laughs> you're doing everything that the black okay so none of this makes any sense so we i feel like we've compartmentalized you know that no, i agree i agree i agree right. and yeah. you know it's, it's funny you say that because in terms of ways of knowing i was having this conversation last week with a brother uh who went to norfolk state and he had on a hoodie, but it didn't say Norfolk State on the front. It said, behold the green and gold. So if you know HBCU culture, you know that's, that's their cry. <laughs> behold the green and gold. And, and it's funny, at the museum the other night, it was black people, white people, all kinds of different people. Kinshasa got up and she said, I left a little space for this. Because, you know, I went to, I, I said I wasn't going to go to Howard. I ended up going to Howard. Brother. So, you know, H-U. And then everybody was like, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the thing that many people at Howard may not know, if you go to Alabama and say, take you, they're going to say, you know, and it's, it's the chip. So when I saw the, the hoodie, I said, oh, man, Norfolk State, he said, yeah, man, I said, behold the green and gold. But then I said, this is 757. He said, yeah, hip hop, you know, our, our element is community. I said, Missy Elliott, now, when you start calling area codes, why you don't do that? That's a governance, that's cultural media makeup for the 215. Oh, yeah, you hear Black Thought 215. You know what I'm saying? I mean, oh, 678, are you from Atlanta? Isn't it? 757, oh, yeah, that's this Teddy Riley. He came, came down in there with Timberland and them boys and the Neptunes and all them, Missy Elliott. We are, you're absolutely right. No matter how buck wild you are, we're going to figure out a way to make community. They ain't going to crucify Deion's hands today. He's going to be celebrated, but at the same time, bro, you don't work with us no more. We holler at you when you out there. You saw what? What's your brother? Are you? I'm sure that's your friend. Mark Curry? Uh, I'm not. I don't I don't know Mark Curry. I, I saw what happened to him. Yeah. Uh, he, thought, he thought he was being punked. He was like, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm really doing this? Like, it, yeah. Now, right. I know that's not Boulder, but it is the state of Colorado. Bruh, be careful out there. I know people broke in your car, was jacked up. Black people break your heart. That look on Deion Sanders' face, that press conference yesterday, I'll tell you, bro. I looked at that man, I said, this is a black man who's hurt. 
And he's trying to explain it. I said, I understand, bro. And you got to make the choices. And you're going to walk in your walk. Ain't nobody hoping you go out there and take an L. And if you are, you shouldn't do that. Nah. Don't hope that man take an L. Thrive, brother. But guess what? We're going to be cool, too. Because we was cool before you came. In fact, you came here. We took your shine. And look at that job you got. That's because of who we are. <laughs> you know? So, and yeah. Kendrick said, we going to be all right. We going to be all right. Dr. Carr, can you hold up uh, the Anansi book again? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. So where where can we get that? Oh, that's, a good, that's a good question. Hold on a second. For it so that oh, we can... I am so glad. Yeah, hold on see if she has some. Uh... You know what? It's called Story Power, LLC. Let me see if she has a website on this. I should have asked her. You know what? We'll find out because. All right. All right. As... Let me, let me uh, single. single uh, so She's asking in the court. She's a piece of Linda. Hold on, Dr. Linda Humes, H U M E S. And 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 like I said, she she had a, a couple of young brothers with her. Um, but her LLC and see, I love it because they got the Sankofa bird. Right. They got Immediately, I was like, that is beautiful. And then look, see, here's the thing that's interesting, right? Metanature, so y'all know that these are dicker symbols, but you know, I know that one there. See. That's right. That and there you go. That's uh Nefer. Beautiful, beautiful Nefer, which of course is a throat and a windpipe because beauty isn't how you look, it's your speech. And we know the evolved conversation of speech in ancient Egyptian and the classical African form, speech isn't what just comes out of your mouth, it's how you move, it's how you act. Beauty is how you act. So, yeah, you're right. And I love what you said about what three weeks ago. Grace. We got grace. It's going to be a graceful time. These girls going to have a ball. I'm going to be sitting real still because I'm too old to be out here. <laughs> no, you no, yes, you I am. Oh, this Atlanta. So, you know, anyway, I'm not. Mm -mm. I'm, I'm right. going to sit there and so be You're not going to get low. In, uh, all right. We're going to move on. No, I ain't, right. I ain't getting low. Look, did you see? I saw, uh, anyway, let me not because I'm, you know what? You know what? What? Know what, you expect. what? Uh, no, because no. I don't know. I'm assuming because. And this is because of him. That's right. You guys why <laughs> it is because of Deion Sanders. There are gonna be people who come today because Deion Sanders last game. So I ain't gonna tell it's probably Luda. Who know gonna be? Who knows who's gonna be there? Just to be uh what they say in uh in your neck of the woods, East Coast, y'all call it newsy. See, we got, we said nosy in the south, and I didn't realize newsy was <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, but it's this regional spin. Yeah. <laughs> Very thin slice. I call it nosy, so I don't yeah. call it nosy. Well, you know, you're a southern, you know, well, you know I mean, you're, you're south being southern far yeah. <laughs> All right, listen, be safe in them streets, y'all. Nubians, if you see Dr. Carr, you know, give him a virtual hug, you know, Please. from afar, even though it's going to be crowded as hell. No, nah, that's cool. We're going to be chilling. Oh, yeah, shit, man, we, we stopped by uh, Madhu Bookstore last night, uh, uh, Mama Nia Damali, who has Nia Bookstore here. Oh, by the way, I couldn't resist. On the way out, they had a um, had a flyer for the Black Santa Claus. You know, it's one of them hella black moths. So I took a picture. I'm going to put it on social media. So this was Samuel Alito. Come sit in this man. <laughs> anyway, but she said to tell you hello and thank you and the, all the Nubians because, you know, they just passed their 32nd anniversary. And she said so many people have come in the bookstore. We've we building something proud. I want to thank you so much uh, because I'm, this love is coming from all. These are institution builders. You see what I'm saying? Somebody, somebody asked yesterday in the chat, you know, so beyond, you know, the chat and, you know, posting things, you know, what what is this going to be? You know, someone's like, you know, Professor Hunter's going to have a vision. No, you're going to have a vision. 
you know, just like yeah. you come into any place, bringing a brick is about imagining the world that you want to live in. Form it. You know, no we're going to give the foundation, you know, but every single other room that gets built in here is going to be built by the people that come because right. we have to awaken our imagination. Let's stop taking orders from people telling us what to do and start to remember that we are the grandparents of this earth and we've built everything That's and right. we have the uh, capacity to build absolutely the success and the energy and the community that we want to build. And it requires something of all of us. So absolutely. Um, absolutely. Oh, wait, um, Kelly said it's a Philly thing. Okay. Newsy New must be Philly. Okay, yeah, like, it's, Jersey. it's not Jersey. I was like, <laughs> well, it's like it's like every depending on yeah. where you're from on the East Coast. When you say John, I know in Philly they say John. Some place they put John. I mean, Philly's bull. Different. Yeah. Philly's but, different. Philly's different. But thanks to uh, thanks to our young sister uh, with Abbott Elementary, the whole world knowing about Philly. So yes. I'm looking forward to that conversation one day between you but, and George. But, Abbott. Let me tell you, Quinta Brunson is an example of what I'm talking about. You know, mm -hmm. she took her life experience in the social structure, didn't give a damn what they told her, came in with her vision, brought her writer's room, picked her people. Come on through, Cheryl Lee Ralph. Come on through, to, you know, brought people through. Um, I was just talking to Orlando um, Jones. And he was like, you know, oh, Quinta yeah. Called, yeah, Quinta called me. I was like, <laughs> that's what that looks like. He's playing the father of the, you know, of the brother that she's probably going to have a love interest with uh, maybe two seasons from now. Because you got to keep the string going. But, you know, like, that's what that looks like. Okay, I got an opportunity. Let me surround myself with power, with people that I know are going to come, going to show up. I was just talking with Dawn Lewis and... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Drusilla. Oh, why am I blanking on her name? Because uh, she's producing a, a thing. Anyway, Dawn Lewis, who's a vampire, apparently, because she's she's older than both of us, and I don't even understand it. But how about, how about that? How about she that? Saying, you know how Victoria, Victoria Rao called her, you know, because she's got an opportunity to produce now. And so she, you, you, this is what you do. You build your empire and our empire around people that you know. And she said, I knew Dawn was going to show up and show out and do it. You know, it's like this... It's not rocket science. We have too much brilliance no. and too many resources to depend on some mediocre ass, no vision having people who just have, you know, the weaponized uh, power to control the world, but nothing else. That's right. Stop it. Let's take that's back it. what should be happening. All right. I'm that's the word. No, that that's yeah. on that word. We can we can next week we'll we'll, we'll see the rest of the year. So yes, sir. Yes, sir. Listen, enjoy. Give everybody the love down there. You know I will, and I'll bring the good word for it, because you know they all going to be telling me, tell Karen, tell Karen, and I'm going to be like, I'm telling her, I'm soon going to tell her. So, so love y'all. Love you, too. Thank you. All right. All right, y'all. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. Get some rest. Do some things for yourself. Love yourselves, because I love you.